Section 11 of The Philosophy of the Plan of Salvation by James Barr Walker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters 12 and 13. Chapter 12. Concerning the condition in life which it was necessary the Messiah should assume, in order to benefit the human family in the greatest degree, by his example and instructions. Selfishness is a fundamental evil of human nature, the existence of which is acknowledged by all men. It is not an evil which belongs to any one class of human society. It is generic and moves all ranks. Only each individual looks upon those who stand next or near him in society, and desires equality with, or superiority over them, in wealth or popularity or power. The law of reason and of God requires that men should endeavor to elevate those below them up to their own condition. Selfishness is the opposite principle, which urges men to elevate themselves over others. If the militia captain could allow the desires of his nature, and ascend from one condition to another until he stood upon the floor of the senate chamber, he would find that the desire which led him to take the first step had only increased its power by gratification, and was still goading him on to rise higher. And he would stop nowhere, while life lasted, until he perceived further efforts useless or dangerous. This selfish pride and desire for self-aggrandizement is detrimental both to the individual and the social interests of men. Wherever selfish ambition exists in any degree of strength, it generates misery to the individual and to others about him. There are not, perhaps, more miserable men in the world than are some of those who have gained to some extent the object of their ambition, and are seated in the halls of legislation. Their minds are constantly anxious in making some effort, or devising some plan, by which they may promote the schemes in which they are engaged. And every time the hopes of one is realized, the stings of envy and jealousy and concealed hate rankle in the bosoms of some others. In the humbler walks of life the evil exists, perhaps in a less degree, but still it exists, and its existence is the bane of human happiness and the cause of human guilt. Now this wicked desire of human nature to aspire after elevated worldly condition, rather than after usefulness of life and goodness of heart, would be either fostered or checked by the condition in life which the Messiah assumed among men. In proportion as his condition was elevated, pride and the desire of elevation would be fostered in the hearts of his followers. In proportion as his condition was humble and depressed, pride of heart would be checked in all those who received and honored him as their master and teacher. Suppose that the Messiah had presented himself in the condition anticipated by the Jews, surrounded by the pomp and parade of a powerful temporal prince, sustaining the earthly dignity and splendor of the ancient monarchs of the dynasty of David. Now had such a Messiah appeared in Judea, it is perfectly certain from the character of human nature that his earthly circumstances would have a tendency to cherish in the people, as a nation, and as individuals, the bad principles of pride and ambition. Worldly pomp and circumstance would have had the sanction of the highest authority in the person of their Messiah, and it would have induced the desire in all hearts to elevate themselves as nearly as possible to his temporal condition. 
the pride of the human heart would have been fostered and not humbled. Instead of causing the middle walks of life to be grateful and contented in their condition, it would have produced in them an anxiety to stretch themselves upwards. And instead of causing those already elevated to fellowship and benefit the worthy poor, it would have caused them to have no sympathy for any of the human family in low estate, because theirs was a condition the opposite of that assumed by the great model which they loved and admired. And instead of causing the poor to feel a greater degree of contentment, and to avoid repining at their lot, the circumstances of the Messiah would have deepened their dejection, and rendered them less happy in their depressed condition, because their condition would hinder them from approach to, or fellowship with, the heaven-sent instructor. A teacher, therefore, believed to be from heaven, who should assume an elevated condition in the world, instead of being a spiritual blessing to the whole family of man, by promoting in their bosoms humility and sympathy for each other, would have been a spiritual curse, by producing haughtiness and hardness of heart in the rich, ambition in the middle classes, and hopeless dejection in the poor. Suppose the Messiah had come in the character which the Greeks admired, that, assuming the seat of the philosophers, he had startled the learned world by disclosing to them new and sublime truths. Suppose he had, by the power of his far-reaching intellect, answered all the questions and solved all the difficulties which perplexed the minds of the disciples of the porch and the academy. In such a case, his instructions would have been adapted to satisfy the minds of a few gifted individuals, but they would not have been adapted to benefit the minds of many, nor the heart of any of the great mass of mankind. Vain of their wisdom already, the character of the Messiah would have been adapted to make the philosophers more so, and instead of blessing them, by humbling their pride and giving them a sympathy with their fellow men, it would have led them and their admirers to look upon those who were not endowed with superior mental qualities as an inferior class of men. But if the Messiah could not have appeared in the condition desired by the Jews, nor in that admired by the Gentiles, the inquiry arises, what condition in life would it be necessary that the Messiah should assume, in order to benefit the human family in the highest degree by the influence of that condition. In view of the foregoing deductions, the solution is obvious. In that condition which would have the most direct influence to destroy selfishness and pride in the human heart, and to foster, in their stead, humility, contentment, and benevolence. Now, in view of this result, deduced directly from the acknowledged character of human nature, Turn your attention to the earthly circumstances of Jesus, and see how directly he brought the whole weight of his condition in life to bear against selfishness and pride of heart. He was born in the lowest possible circumstances. His life was a constant rebuke to every ambitious and proud feeling of the human heart, and his death was one esteemed by men the most ignominious. No one who openly acknowledged and had fellowship with Jesus of Nazareth as his teacher and master, could do so until the natural pride of his nature was subdued. It was impossible for a man to find fellowship with Jesus unless he humbled himself, because in no other state could his feelings meet those of Christ. Take my yoke upon you, said Jesus, and learn of me, 
for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Thus did Jesus place himself in a condition which rendered humility absolutely necessary in order to sympathy with him, in the condition directly opposed to pride of heart, one of the most insidious enemies of man's happiness and usefulness. And as it is an acknowledged and experimental fact that the soul finds rest only in meekness, and never in selfishness and pride of mind, therefore the demonstration is perfect that Christ assumed the only condition which it was possible for him to assume, and thereby destroy pride and misery, and produce humility and peace in human bosoms. Profane history and the New Testament scriptures confirm the foregoing views. Tacitus, speaking of the primitive Christians, alludes to them with marked contempt, as the followers of one who had been crucified. His manner evinces clearly not only his own feelings, but it is a good index to the feelings of a majority of the people of that proud and idolatrous age, and it establishes beyond all controversy the fact that no one could declare himself a follower of Christ until, for truth and for Christ's sake, he was willing to be considered base in the estimation of the world. The elegant Pliny likewise bears direct testimony to the humility and integrity of life which characterized the earthly disciples of Christ. A great number of passages in the New Testament confirm the preceding views. It is only necessary to say that the apostles understood not only the effect of their Lord's circumstances, in life and death, upon the minds of men, but they understood likewise the philosophy and the necessity of the case says Paul, quote, It became, or was expedient for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified, are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. End quote that is the humble and self-denying life and death of jesus was necessary because it would have a sanctifying effect in counteracting the evils in the hearts of men it was necessary for him to become their brother man and assume a certain character and condition in order that by their becoming one with him they might be sanctified and made happy and useful thus while the jews required a sign and the greeks sought for wisdom the apostles preached Christ crucified, understanding the philosophy, the efficiency, and the necessity of their doctrine. And so long as the world lasts, every man who reads the New Testament, whether saint or sinner, will be penetrated with the conviction that a vain, aspiring, selfish spirit is incompatible with the religion of Jesus. Chapter 13. Concerning the Essential Principles Which Must according to the nature of things, lie at the foundation of the instruction of Christ. The Messiah having come in the proper character, displayed the proper credentials, and assumed the necessary condition, the question arises, what may we learn from the character of God and the nature of man concerning the fundamental principles which would govern the teaching of Jesus? God is righteous and benevolent. It therefore follows that he would connect happiness with righteousness and goodness in his creatures. Were he to do otherwise, 
it would be causing the happiness of men to arise from a character different from his own, which, as God is good, would be impossible, because it would be wicked. Further, man is so constituted that, as a matter of fact, his true happiness depends upon righteousness of life and benevolence of heart. When his will accords with his knowledge of duty, or when he acts as he knows is right, towards God and his fellow men, there is peace and even complacency of conscience. Peace and complacency of conscience is the happiness which, according to man's moral constitution, arises from righteousness, or right acting, in life. And when man exercises benevolent feeling, has love in his heart to God and men, this exercise of benevolent affection produces happiness. Now, there can be no such thing as happiness of spirit, except it arises from these sources. And when these sources are full and flowing, and thus unite together, when there is perfect love and a perfect life, the soul is rendered happy. A single unrighteous act of will, or malevolent feeling of heart, will destroy this happiness. A single emotion of hatred or ill-will, or a single evil act, known to be such, toward any of God's creatures, will destroy the peace of the soul. Even hatred to an enemy, or the desire of revenge, or any emotion but good will, injures the soul's happiness. Thus, in constituting the human soul, God, in accordance with his own character, has caused its happiness to depend upon righteousness and goodness. Now then, a teacher sent from God must recognize these fundamental principles, and give his instruction in view of them. The happiness of the human soul, which is its life, its first and best and only good, could be produced in no other way. The whole force, therefore, of divine instruction would be designed and adapted to accomplish this necessary end. The legitimate development of God's nature, exercised towards man, would produce such instructions and such an example, and the best good of the human soul rendered it necessary that they should be given. It is not said that, as in the schools of philosophy, the constant inquiry and search should be for the greatest good. The very effort to obtain happiness in this way would destroy its existence. Happiness is not objective, but subjective. No direct effort could gain it. It is the result of the right action of the moral powers. It would not be necessary, therefore, that those instructed should even understand the principles which governed their instructor. It would be sufficient if the instruction was designed and adapted to promote righteousness and goodness. Then happiness of the soul would follow as a result, whether or not the recipient of the instruction understood the principles which governed his teacher. Now the whole power of Christ's instruction was directed to this point. It was distinguished in this respect from all other instruction ever given to mankind. I say to you, love your enemies, do good to them that despitefully use you, be anxious about no worldly good. The weightier matters of the law are righteousness and the love of God. Love and obey God, and love and do good to your neighbor. This is the law and the prophets. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness, and all other things will be added to you. That is, seek first righteousness and the love of God, and the necessary result will grow out of these exercises, 
happiness or life will be added as a consequence. Thus was the whole force of the Saviour's teaching and example designed and adapted to produce righteousness and benevolence, and as these are the only exercises from which man's true happiness can arise, it follows that the principles involved in the instruction of Christ, connecting happiness with holiness, are the only principles which can, in accordance with the character of God and the constitution of man, produce the greatest good of the human soul. Jesus, therefore, was the Christ of God, because the Christ of God could found his instructions on no other principles, the principles which are fundamental in his teaching being those which alone can produce the happiness of the soul in accordance with its own moral nature, and in accordance with the moral character of God. End of section 11